This man really is the saviour of the world. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to see you this morning? Beyond what's going on in our lives, beyond our understanding, beyond the ways in which we've walked with you in our lives so far. Open our eyes today to you. Your glory, your truth, and your grace. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Good morning, all. Um, I am short sighted. Um, now, some of you, as I say that, may be thinking, finally, after four years, the vicar realizes how short sighted he really is. But actually what I'm talking about is myopia. So I am short-sighted. From the age of 16, I've had to wear glasses and um, something is changing. There is a, a, a big transformation going on in me and it's called ageing. <laughs> uh, and as I get older, I've reached the age now of 46, so I'm finally middle-aged, hallelujah. Um, I am moving from... As the muscles in my eyes weaken, I am moving from sort of being over here and being short-sighted to the promised land of glory of being long-sighted and joining some of you. And apparently, according to the optician, I'm going to go pass through this amazing midpoint about here when I will almost have 20-20 vision. And I have to say my eyesight is getting a bit better uh, so I think I'm somewhere about here at the moment. But it is amazing that I, I don't have to wear glasses all the time, albeit I was squinting at the screen there trying to read the words. And here in the first few chapters of John's Gospel, we see this thread of what it means to see, or perhaps most importantly, what it means not to see. And we see this through a... a a few encounters that Jesus has with a whole variety of people. So we're going to go on a little journey through some of those quickly now. So if you look at your Bibles, either on your phone or uh, in printed form, and you flick back to John chapter 2, uh, this is Jesus clearing the temple, and in particular verses 19 and 20 of John chapter 2. So Jesus is in the temple and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the reply comes, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do that? They just could not see. They couldn't see who Jesus was and they couldn't understand what he was saying. It wasn't about a physical temple. They just couldn't see. Now, we're going to move on to chapter 3. Those of you here last week would know John was speaking about uh, this encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus. And in verse 4, Jesus says to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And the reply comes, surely you can't enter a second time into your mother's womb to be born again. Nicodemus can't see. He just doesn't understand who Jesus is and what it means to be born again. 
And then if you turn over the page or look to uh, chapter 4, we come to Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. So Jesus walks into Sychar, into this town, and he's thirsty, he's hungry, he's tired. He sits down at a well, and a Samaritan woman approaches him, and he asks her a question. Can I have a drink? And it leads to this most amazing conversation between Jesus and this woman about the gift of God. But if you look at verse 10 of chapter 4, Jesus says, If you knew who I am, I would give you living water. But the Samaritan woman, again, just can't see who Jesus is. And so she replies, in essence, where's your bucket to lower into this well to get some living water? There's a spiritual blindness here. But this miraculous transformation takes place as the conversation continues between Jesus and this woman. So if you flick back to chapter 1, John's Gospel, and verse 14, we read about Jesus, who's come from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what we see in this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman is what this grace and truth really looks like. You know, I talk to a lot of people saying, for me, this is one of the the tensions in the Christian faith that we need to hold grace and truth together. And if we want to know, well, what does that look like in a conversation? Here it is, chapter 4, Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman. So first of all, Jesus shows grace to her. Back in the, in the day, it wasn't acceptable for Jesus as a rabbi to speak to a Samaritan. It was even less acceptable for him to speak to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus shows grace to her. He receives her. He invites her into a conversation with him. He welcomes her. And he offers her this gift of living water. Jesus doesn't embarrass her like the other men have done in her life that we go on to read about. He shows her grace, which is undeserved love. And I don't know about you, but I need more of God's grace in my life. I need that undeserved love. Daily, weekly, hourly. I need his grace. We need his grace. But Jesus also goes on to speak truth into this woman's life about her past relationships. So look at verses 16 to 19 in chapter 4. Jesus speaks truth into her life about the relationships she's had, the previous marriages that she's had. And his desire is that this Samaritan woman would be set free from the abuse and ways in which she's been mistreated by some of these men in the past. And that she would come to the one and only true God and worship him in spirit and truth. And it is these words of truth and this act of grace that breaks through in this woman's life that enables her to actually have her eyes open and to see 
who is before her. So in verse 26 of chapter 4 we read, Jesus declares, I the one speaking to you, I am he. He's saying, I am the Messiah. This is one of the seven I am statements in John's gospel. He's revealing his identity and revealing his glory of who he really is. And then we come to Jesus' encounter with the disciples. And the disciples also have these blinkers on. They struggle to see. So in verse 8 of chapter 4, just at the end in the Bibles in, in the back of the chairs, you'll see it's in brackets. We read his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And as we flick forward to the passage that we've just been reading together, we see that the disciples reappear and... First of all, they question Jesus. What are you doing speaking to this woman? But by then, the Samaritan woman has gone back into the town and she is going and telling everyone, I think I've just met the Messiah. But the disciples are obsessed with food. They're distracted by food. And so they say, Rabbi, eat something. And Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you do not know about. But the disciples just can't see. They don't understand. And so they reply, who brought him food? And so there's this whole series of statements and questions running through the beginning of John's gospel. 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? How can someone re-enter their mother's womb and be born again? Where is your bucket that you're going to draw this living water from? And who brought you food? Where's this food come from? We've just been to town to buy you food. Where have you got food from? Each one of these encounters shows a spiritual blindness. And each one of these people are effectively asking the wrong question. And I don't know about you, but as I read these verses, it's like God holds up a huge mirror to me and asks me, David, what questions are you asking me? What questions are we asking Jesus? I mean, we may not be distracted by food. You may be distracted by food right now, thinking about what you're going to have for lunch. But whatever it is, what is consuming our thoughts and our conversations in our lives that is blinkering us, blinding us from seeing the glory of the one and only. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's not that God and Jesus have changed It may just be that you and I are looking over here when we need to be looking up to him. And I think it's important to say that food isn't bad. Nowhere in scriptures does Jesus say food is bad, but he does say, trust me, I will give you something to eat as I feed the birds of the air. In the same way that he doesn't say money is bad, but he says it's our attitude to it. So give it away, be generous, be released from greed through generosity. 
And he doesn't say that relationships are bad, but he does say put Jesus first in all that we do. And so this encounter reminds us that God sees everything. He sees the bits of our lives that we try and hide. He sees the bits of our lives that actually we'd rather he didn't. He sees everything. So there's no point hiding. You know, Adam and Eve tried to hide from God and it didn't go very well. So our lives are laid bare before him. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more we get to see his glory, his truth, his grace, the fullness of who he is and who we are in him. And it's like James' picture. That, you know, we have those moments when the clouds part and we see, don't we? We see Jesus with that clarity that James saw, the Alps in all their splendor and glory and beauty and majesty and wonder. We have those moments in our lives when we see clearly But as the disciples are battling to work out, what is Jesus talking about? And why doesn't he want a packed lunch that we bought him in the co-op? Jesus says, open your eyes and look at the harvest. Or it says, says in the message version, open your eyes and take a good look at what is right in front of you. These Samaritan fields are ripe. It's harvest time. In other words, stop thinking about your stomach and what you're going to eat and yourselves generally and look out to the lost and the broken and the least and the last. Look out to the Samaritans. Look out to the people of Reading. 17,000 students here in our town. A quarter of a million men and women and children, the vast majority of whom do not know Jesus. They know very little about him. They're out there doing other things at the moment. There's a spiritual blindness there. This is our mission field. And so I want to ask each one of us, where is your Samaria? Is it your place of work? Is there maybe one colleague that you could talk to this week to tell them about what God has been doing in your life, to share the news of Jesus? Is it your neighbor, your family? Is it your friends? Is it the place where you're studying? All of us are called to to bring this life-giving news of Jesus to the lost, And pray that eyes would open, just like they did for this Samaritan woman. That hearts would turn and lives would be transformed as people see Jesus in all his glory. And I kind of want to remind us this morning that we would shift our thinking about church. You know, church is not a building that we come to once or twice a week. You are church seven days a week. Every single day, you are church. It's the hope of Christ, his glory in you, going out into your communities, your place of work, 
that is church. You are church Monday through to Monday, seven days a week, wherever you are. And the woman at the well who asked this question, Jesus, where is your bucket, went on to be a catalyst for a most amazing move of God in Samaria. What did she do? We'll have a look at verse 39 of chapter 4. She shared her story. That's what she did. She just shared her story. She told her her testimony. And so for many of us, when we think about, well, I feel a bit intimidated about sharing the gospel. Share your story. Tell someone about something, anything that God has done in your life in the last day, week, month, year. That glorifies God. As a bridge to begin a conversation about who is God? Who is Jesus? What does he mean for you in your life? Jesus is the saviour of the world. He came for everyone. But he's looking to you and me to get the good news out there. But this isn't something we do alone. And in fact, the good news is one of the other threads that we see through John's Gospel is this thread of intimacy. That throughout John's Gospel, we read about what it means for Jesus to be intimate with his Father. What it means for Jesus to surrender to the Father. What it means for you and me to abide in Jesus. What it means for us to remain in him. To surrender our lives to him. What it means for you and me to be Christ-like. And I want to finish with this picture, if you like. You may have read, uh, or you may not have done in the news this week, that Tesla, the car manufacturer, has leapt in value. So it is now, apparently, the second most valuable car manufacturer in the world. It's overtaken Volkswagen. And it's worth over $100 billion. And Tesla, as you may know, is owned by Elon Musk, and uh, they produce electric cars, that some of which self-drive. And you'll see a few of them driving around Reading. And I was on the M4 a few weeks ago, and I was driving... Um, Sort of, I can't remember which lane it was, doesn't really matter. And I looked across and one of these Teslas overtook me. But it was sort of quite gentle and quite slow. And as I looked across, I couldn't believe it. I don't think this is actually allowed in this country. But the person who was driving it was reading a newspaper in one hand and holding a can of Coke, drinking some Coke in the other And I just looked astounded as this thing just like glided silently past me. Um, My son, who was in the passenger seat, was in awe. He thought it was the most awesome thing he'd ever seen. Dad, can we get one of those? Answer is, stipend doesn't quite stretch to a Tesla. Sorry to disappoint you again. Um, But here's the point. The message translation of Jesus' words when Jesus says to his disciples, deny yourself... Take up your cross and follow me, is this. Jesus said to his disciples, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. Jesus, lead. You are not in the driver's seat. I am. Jesus is in the driving seat. And some of you may have heard this before. But if... Our lives are a car. 
then as Christians, we need to have Jesus in the car. And the question is, where is he in your car? Is he in the boot? And he sort of comes out once a week when you come to Greyfriars. Come on, Jesus, you know, in we go. It's time to go to church. Is he in the back seat? Is he in the passenger seat of your life? Or is Jesus in the driving seat of your life? And if Jesus is in the driving seat of your life, are you and I in the back seat shouting instructions at him? This Samaritan woman went through a life-changing transformation. But it involved letting go. It involved surrender. And I just sense at the moment for all of us, me included, we're going through a time when God is saying, let go. Trust me. Put me, Jesus, in the driving seat. Trust me for your life. Trust me for his timing for things in our lives. Trust Jesus for his purposes to be worked out in us and through us. Trust him that his will will be done in and through us as we surrender and let go. And I just want to make some space now, some silence, where we can be before God and allow him to search our lives and say, by his Holy Spirit, there's some areas of our lives where we need to let go where we are gripping on to the steering wheel. And he's saying, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You are not in the driver's seat. I am. So let's just be still before God. You might want to close your eyes. You might want to keep them open. Whatever you are comfortable with. And just in the silence to invite God to take that place again of being our Lord and Saviour, ruling and reigning, not just in word, but actually ruling and reigning, leading in our lives, having control as we let go and trust him. Let's do that together now as we pray.